0: This is Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is a new episode. It's August 15th. Thanks for joining me again. And the big story in the news is obviously, at least to me, and it should be to you, was the 75-year-old satanic versus author Salman Rushdie, who was stabbed on Friday during a speech he was giving in Chautauqua, New York. Rushdie was uh, stabbed multiple times, was on a ventilator, but is now off and is apparently Recovering, although he's got some very serious life changing injuries. I mean, at his age, any kind of uh, injury is probably uh, life altering. He had three stab wounds to the right side of the front of his neck, four stab wounds to his stomach, a puncture wound to his right eye and chest, and a laceration on his right thigh. And from what we've learned so far, he's probably going to lose an eye. And he's had uh, extensive surgery already. Now, Rushdie's 1988 novel was viewed as a novel. It was viewed as blasphemous by many Muslims across the globe who saw a character as an insult to the Prophet Muhammad, among other objections. And across the Muslim world, often violent protests uh, erupted against Rushdie, who was born in India, to a Muslim family. At least 45, if you can believe this, actually, it's really not hard to believe, at least 45 people were killed in riots over the book, including 12 in Rushdie's hometown of Mumbai. Naturally, as we've learned over the years, Muslims cannot tolerate any disrespect to their religion, and there have been constant, there's been constant murder in the name of Islam in order to purportedly defend Islam over the years. This is obviously unusual because if, you're, if you care so much about your religion, if you believe in it so much, why does somebody's words cause you to need to kill them? Your religion should be strong enough that it should make you feel that it's uh, impenetrable. Your beliefs, your faith is impenetrable and no words are going to change that. Now, threats against Rushdie and others involved in publishing the satanic verses Reached a real boiling point the year later in 1989 when Iran's then supreme leader, Ayatollah Khomeini, issued a fatwa or a legal ruling on a point of Islamic law from an authority. And of course, a psychotic, murderous uh, Khomeini was uh, such an authority in Islam. And he called for the death of Salman Rushdie and his publishers, urging Muslims to quote, Kill them without delay so that no one will dare insult the sacred beliefs of Muslims henceforth and he offered a bounty of 2.8 million dollars for Rushdie's murder. The fatwa forced Rushdie to go into hiding in London and he was hiding under a British government protection program which included round-the-clock armed guard. I mean think about this this is a country that attends the UN with every other country, I'm talking about Iran, and they can put a fatwa on an author's head simply because of his writing? This is the world, and this is the uh, appeasement that we allowed Iran to get away with, and that was only 10 years after uh, the revolution in Iran. Now, in 1989, I mean, just to show that when Iranians uh, want to cause terrorism and kill people, you know, they mean it. There's no idle threat. In 1989, four bombs were planted outside the British bookstores that were operated by Penguin, which published the Satanic Verses. A number of people who helped publish international editions of the novel had, had been attacked over the years. The book's Japanese translator was found stabbed to death in 1991 at the Tokyo area university where he taught comparative Islamic culture. Just days before the Japanese translator was attacked and and killed, the Italian translator of the novel survived the stabbing in his Milan apartment. The Italian translator said that his attacker described himself as Iranian and approached him for help in translating a Muslim pamphlet. So, you know, of course you help them and they respond by uh, trying to stick a knife into you and kill you. In 1993, Islamic militants set fire to a hotel in Eastern Turkey in a plot to kill an author who published an excerpt of the satanic verses in a Turkish newspaper. Just publishing an excerpt. Well, the author escaped and survived, but 37 others were killed. Three months later, the book's Norwegian publisher was shot three times out home, outside his home in Oslo, but he survived. Naturally, American liberals joined in with radical Muslims, as they often do, and condemned Salman Rushdie. Jimmy Carter, a supporter of the Palestinian terror group Hamas and probably the worst president that we've ever had, he wrote an opinion piece in the New York Times after the Satanic Verses was published in which he blasted Salman Rushdie. The title of his article was Rushdie's Book is an Insult. And this is what Jimmy Carter has become. He went from being the worst president to being the worst American apologist for radical Muslim terror. Over the years, Iran has tried to pretend it was less radical because they wanted to, you know, for financial reasons, they didn't want to get sanctioned. They wanted to not be as isolated, even as they were funding terrorist groups all over the world and killing people in September, 1998. Iran's then president said that the Rushdie affair was, quote, completely finished. And uh, days later, Iranian Iranian foreign minister uh, said that the government disassociates itself from any reward for Rushdie's death and said that the official position is that the administration did not support the fatwa anymore. However, three Iranian clerics called for followers to kill Rushdie under the fatwa soon after. And in October, about 160 members of Iran's parliament agreed that Rushdie's death decree was still valid. As recently as 2012, a quasi-official Iranian religious foundation added a further $300,000 to the reward to kill Rushdie, bringing it to over $3 So in October, of 1998, just when they said, Iran, that they were no longer involved with the fatwa, the fact is, is that very important Iranian clerics uh, just a month uh, later, um, as well as uh, 160 members of the parliament agreed that the death decree was still valid. So it was just bullshit lip service to say they were no longer interested in Salman Rushdie being killed. Now, Iran's current supreme uh, psychotic leader has never issued a fatwa of his own, withdrawing the prior fatwa calling for Rushdie's murder. In fact, the current supreme leader of Iran has stated that the arrow, that's his words, shot by Ayatollah Khomeini, who issued the original fatwa, quote, will one day hit the target. By the way, this current Ayatollah maniac Muslim terrorist killer has an account on Twitter. Still, even though he's called for the death of Salman Rushdie. I've had 10 of my accounts removed from Twitter. I'm currently banned on Twitter. A mass-murdering Iranian terror leader is on Twitter. But look, this is liberalism, as I've said. Liberalism, radical Islam, hand in glove. They'll support the Muslim terrorist killers, but somebody like me who's never called for the death of anybody uh, on Twitter except for other killers... I get kicked off now. Anti-Salman Rushdie sentiment has lingered long after Ayatollah Khomeini's decree. I mean, it was you know decades ago. The Index on Censorship, an organization promoting free expression, said that money was raised to boost the reward for Rushdie's killing as recently as 2016. Now, after Rushdie was attacked on Friday, Iran has not made any official comment. However, a hardline newspaper whose editor-in-chief is appointed by Iran's supreme leader wrote, A thousand bravos to the brave and dutiful person who attacked the apostate and evil Salman Rushdie in New York. The hand of the man who tore the neck of God's enemy must be kissed. Another hardline newspaper's headline was, Knife in Salman Rushdie's Neck. Satan on the Way to Hell read the headline of another hardline Iranian state-run newspaper. So this is Iran's official position. The 24-year-old Muslim terrorist who stabbed Rushdie was born in the United States, a decade after the Satanic Verses was even published to parents who came from, yes, a Muslim terrorist state, Lebanon. He was active on social media, where his posts showed that he had sympathies for uh, Shia terrorism and uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard, their their terror arm of their government. Iran's terror leadership is the Shiite brand of Islam. That's why um, he was so supportive of of that on the Internet. Now, this uh, would-be killer carried a fake ID with a fake name with the first and last names, fake name, of two Hezbollah leaders. Hezbollah is the Shiite terror group funded by Iran, which presently has taken over Lebanon after killing its prime minister. The village from which the Rushdie stabber's parents came from contains public portraits of Iranian leaders, past and present, that are just, you know, hanging out on the street, pictures of their favorite Iranian killers, Uh, This criminal defendant now was denied bail on Friday precisely for that reason, because of the agenda that was set by Iran to kill Rushdie after the publication of the Satanic Verses. Now, for some reason, the FBI missed this terrorist who was hiding in plain sight. I mean, he's not hiding himself. He called out the fact that he supported uh, the Iranian terrorists. He supported all their terrorism. Instead of investigating parents who attend board of education meetings and protest against critical race theory, perhaps the FBI's time would be better spent investigating, I don't know, Muslim terror supporters who don't even make an attempt to to hide, and they talk openly of, of radical Muslim ideals. I mean, the guy was on social media under his real name, regardless, regardless for some reason There were no metal detectors at this event that Rushdie was speaking at, which anytime you have somebody who's under a fatwa, it's probably a good idea to have uh, metal detectors because when a Muslim terrorist wants to kill you, it's not like they really care about their lives. I mean, they're, they're fucking zombies for Allah. They're not there to be concerned about their children, about their lives, about their future. They want to die for Allah. That's it. And I'm not saying this is all Muslims. But the Muslim terrorists, and there is not a small number of them, if 20% of all Muslims worldwide are radicalized, you've got like almost 2 billion Muslims, you know, what's 20% of 2 billion? That's a lot of people, right? That's a lot of people. Millions and millions and millions. Just to show you that for some reason, uh, we don't take Muslim terrorists seriously. This is incredible. I I read this and I'd forgotten about this an Islamic studies academic dubbed the Professor of Peace at Oberlin College in Ohio, endorsed the campaign to assassinate Salman Rushdie, a professor named Muhammad Jafar Mahalati who teaches at Oberlin in Ohio today. Today. When asked about the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa and the right to put a bounty on someone's head, in a 1989 Reuters report, This so-called Iranian scholar responded, I think all Islamic countries agree with Iran. All Islamic nations and countries agree with Iran that any blasphemous statement against sacred figures should be condemned. I think if Western countries really believe and respect freedom of speech, therefore, they should also respect Our freedom of speech. We certainly use that right in order to express ourselves, our religious belief in the case of any blasphemous statement against sacred Islamic figures. So, what this maniac who presently teaches at Oberlin today says is look, you love freedom of speech. Our freedom of speech is we want to kill anybody who insults our religion, and you should respect that. This is a guy who is teaching young impressionable minds at a far leftist college in ohio he is shaping the minds of young americans and we're letting this disease into our country to teach the kids and he's still there and it's funny how they call him the professor of peace you know you'd think it's like a joke but it's not because islam is also referred to as the religion of peace i refer to it as the religion of pieces Based on all the suicide bombing and what remains afterwards, but that's just me. That's my little joke. Now, the fatwa business was started by Iran in the late 80s against Rushdie. It spurred all kinds of Muslim terror attacks against anyone who dared insult Islam. The most famous ones include the attack on the French, uh, remember Charlie Hebdo, the weekly satirical newspaper in 2015. Charlie Hebdo always courted controversy with attacks on political and religious leaders. It published cartoons of Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad in 2012, which, of course, naturally forced France to temporarily close embassies and schools in more than 20 countries because they were terrified of being blowed up. Charlie Hebdo's offices were firebombed in November of 2011 after publishing a previous caricature of Muhammad on its cover. I mean, you just can't do this because there's going to be a lot of Muslims that need to blow you up. And again, the laws don't apply when the Prophet Muhammad is insulted. Now, on January 7, 2015, two French Muslim terrorists and brothers forced their way into the offices of Charlie Hebdo in Paris. They were armed with rifles and other weapons, and they killed 12 people and injured 11 others. Several related attacks followed in Paris that same day and in the days that followed. On the same day as the Charlie Hebdo attack in Paris, a Muslim terrorist killed four Jews inside a kosher supermarket in Paris. President Obama, in an effort to downplay the Muslim terror angle uh, against Jews because uh, to him, that wasn't really Muslim terror. That was, I think, what Jews deserved, I suppose. Uh, Obama lied about it and said that the attack was random. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The same day that Muslim terrorists are slaughtering people at Charlie Hebdo and a Muslim terrorist walks into a kosher supermarket a few miles away and slaughters four Jews. I'm sure that was just a random coincidence. Of course, that was a fucking damnable lie by Obama. But again, He didn't get that Hussein as a middle name by mistake. Uh, That was not a coincidence. And in 2013, I was doing talk radio in New York City every day. My broadcasts were on the ground floor of a Manhattan hotel behind a large window on the ground floor, which allowed pedestrians to see us doing the broadcast live. And in support of Charlie Hebdo and in support of free speech, I drew a picture of a dog and I named it Muhammad during a live broadcast and I crumbled it up on live radio. The threats to the radio station that were received were so numerous that the radio show was then moved to an inner conference room on a higher floor of the hotel, away from the windows. Why? Because radical Islam. That's why. And this is the mentality of many of the followers of Islam. Just complete intolerance. It's why you can't be gay in so many Muslim countries. They just won't tolerate this at all or any thinking that they believe goes against the Quran in their mind. Even J.K. Rowling, the famous Harry Potter author, dared to say that the news on Salman Rushdie's stabbing, all she said was that it was horrifying on Twitter. She also wrote, feeling very sick right now, let him be okay. Naturally, those were fighting words, and it, her words were met with a threat from a Pakistani Twitter user who responded, don't worry, you are next. And this uh, Pakistani noted that the attacker of Salman Rushdie was a, quote, revolutionary Shia fighter. That's what he said. This terror supporter wasn't a member of a terror group. Instead, he described himself as, quote, a student, social activist, political activist, and research activist. This is what passes for an educated intellect in Muslim society in some of these countries. Hours later, that account was still active. Ultimately, he deleted the account before uh, Twitter had a chance to suspend it. And again, I've had at least 10 of my accounts permanently terminated by Twitter, and I've never threatened anyone's life. I've just pointed out terrorism like shit like this. And I'll say it again, liberalism is a mental disorder on the level of radical Islam. It's not a coincidence that they hate the same groups of people. It's not a coincidence that they work together in Muslim terror states. It's the same shit. It's hand in glove. But back to the Salman Rushdie attack. This was decades in the making that was started by Iran. This is what Iran does. It's a terror state which exports its terrorism. It's all over the globe. Its proxies have killed people all over the globe in every continent. This is what they do. They're literally a satanic cancer And the world just refuses to end them. And just over the past couple of weeks, there have been arrests of Iranians inside of America trying to kill former members of our government because they were hardliners against Iran. John Bolton, Mike Pompeo, and even Iranian dissidents are targeted inside America. They come here to escape Iran. And Iran still comes here and tries to kill them. Two weeks ago, law enforcement in Brooklyn arrested a Muslim terrorist who was caught outside the Brooklyn home of a prominent Iranian dissident journalist and author. Authorities alleged this was just a year after the FBI allegedly foiled a kidnapping plot against this female dissident that was done by the Iranian government. Two weeks ago, a terrorist who was who was arrested was armed with an AK-47 assault rifle with an obliterated, obliterated serial number and loaded with a bullet in the chamber and a magazine attached. The terrorist also had a second magazine and 66 rounds of ammo. This Iranian dissident that he was targeting had become a U.S. citizen in 2019, a very brave woman. After working for years as a journalist in Iran, she had fled the country and has become a prominent figure in the media where she criticizes Iran's terrorist government. And as I said last year, an Iranian intelligence officer and others were charged with attempting to kidnap this dissident and take her back to Iran, and not to just throw her a parade, to torture and kill her. That's what Iran does. The terrorist who was arrested outside the dissident's home was seen looking in the window and trying to open the front door. He initially claimed he was in the neighborhood looking for a room to rent, but later admitted that he had been in the area, quote, looking for someone. That was according to the criminal complaint, which I read. He spent at least two days stalking uh, and staking out the dissident's home in Flatbush, getting food delivered to his SUV, looking in her windows, trying to open her door. And as I said, an Iranian terrorist, a member of Iran's Revolutionary Guard, was charged this past week for trying to orchestrate the assassination of John Bolton, who was Trump's former national security advisor and a hawk against Iran. Iran has openly threatened to kill members of Trump's administration who were against Iran. The Iranian terrorist who was just arrested attempted to pay three hundred thousand dollars to an individual in the United States to kill Bolton and Mike Pompeo for a million dollars payment. This all happened in the past two weeks. Salman Rushdie nearly gets killed due to an Iranian fatwa, two members of our government nearly killed by an Iranian government terrorist, and a vocal Iranian dissident who survived the plot to, to kidnap and kill her in New York last year by the Iranian government is nearly killed by an Iranian terrorist in New York again. At the same time, this is incredible. I can't even believe I'm saying this. At the same time this is happening, we're bending over backwards to get Iran to agree to come back to the nuclear deal that was abandoned by President Trump, a deal which will purportedly slow Iran's march to a nuclear bomb. And we should trust them because they're so trustworthy. Included in this deal that we're trying to work out with Iran that Biden, I wouldn't say we, because I would never, I would be nuking Iran if I was in charge. Not even a question. I'd nuke them tomorrow. Tomorrow. They need to be taken out. Included in this deal would be sanctions relief worth hundreds of billions of dollars to Iran. Nowhere in this deal that's very close to happening, nowhere is Iran, is Iran required to stop its global terrorism. They're allowed to continue to do this inside of America, in our own country, in the past two weeks. They're trying to kill Americans, and we're bending over for them, trying to get them to come back to the nuclear deal. It's almost unfathomable that we're doing this. We're about to give them hundreds of billions of dollars, and they're going to use it to finance terrorism in our country. This is what pays for Salman Rushdie to be killed in New York. This is what pays for attempts on our politicians' lives. This is what paid for thousands of rockets to be launched at Israeli citizens over the past few weeks. Maybe this isn't the right time to give Iran money. Shouldn't, at a, at a minimum, they be required to stop their terrorism? I don't know. Inside America? Think about it. They could sign this deal on the next day, assassinate Joe Biden. And we're going to be th- thrilled that they signed this fucking deal? Like, they can be trusted? I mean, is this really the right time for this deal? According to Joe Biden, according to the Democratic Party, it's a perfect time. Find me one person who thinks this is sane. One person. Find me one person who thinks it's sane to have a college professor in Ohio teaching young students who support, he supports the fatwa and murder of Salman Rushdie. Why is this guy teaching American students? He should be grabbed in his home, put into a burlap sack, and sent the fuck out of America. 81 million people in America support this shit. All Joe Biden voters. We're still allowing Iranian diplomats in our country when they're trying to kill American politicians the same day. We allow the diplomats families in our country while they're trying to kill Americans. Why are we letting them come to America? Why aren't they kicked out immediately? Just based on the the Rushdie stabbing and the plot to kill Pompeo and Bolton? Instead, the Biden administration in 2021 eased restrictions imposed by the Trump administration on the movement of Iranian diplomats that are accredited at the UN and headquartered in New York City. And the reason why the Biden administration eased these restrictions, it was a part of a bid to reduce tensions between America and Iran. This is what a State Department official told reporters. Quote, the idea here." is to take steps to remove unnecessary obstacles to multilateral diplomacy by amending the restrictions on domestic travel. Those had been extremely restrictive. You know what's extremely restrictive? Killing our fucking politicians. That's extremely restrictive. You know what also removes unnecessary obstacles to multilateral diplomacy between the U.S. and Iran? Them stopping to try to kill our politicians inside America last week. Them stopping to try to kill dissidents in America last week. As part of this uh, maximum pressure campaign on Iran, Trump in 2019 barred Iranian diplomats from all but a few blocks around the UN and their mission with Foreign Minister uh, Javad Zarif Saying that he was even prohibited during a UN visit from visiting a colleague in a New York hospital. Of course, we should have stopped that. Listen, you can think Trump is an idiot. He is. You can think all that. But guess what? Trump had the horse sense to know you do not reward these Muslim terrorists. You don't. You put your foot on their necks. You stop them from committing terrorism. You don't reward them. They're trying to kill American politicians last week? Americans, uh, citizens last week? Salman Rushdie was stabbed last week due to an Iranian fatwa? And we're not immediately rounding up all of their diplomats and sending them home? Over the weekend, the Palestinian terrorists shot up an Israeli bus and wounded seven people. Hamas, which is Iran's paid-for terror group, which, of course, governs the Palestinian people, they praised the attack and called it a heroic and courageous operation. Four Americans from New York were the victims of that shooting on that bus. One of the victims of this, quote, heroic operation was a pregnant woman who was shot in the stomach by this Palestinian scumbag. That was heroic, according to the Iranian-backed Palestinian government. Instead of letting Iranian terrorists into our country where they try to kill Americans, instead of giving them billions of dollars of sanction relief, we should be dropping bombs on Iran today. They're in our country trying to kill Americans. They're trying to kill Americans overseas. Why are they safe in Iran? Kill them in Iran. Kill them in Palestine. Kill them in Syria. Kill them. In Lebanon, appeasement is not working. We're not even raising a hand to them after what they did over the past week. Who is Iran? Is this some powerful country that has a nuke that could be dropped on us? No. Now is the time. And it was the time in 1979 when the revolution occurred. And it's been the time every day since then. How much longer are we going to wait? Are we going to wait for them to get a nuclear bomb? Then they're untouchable. Now, the next subject I want to talk about was the search that was uh, executed on Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. Some thoughts. We still don't have the affidavit in support of the search warrant, which includes the reasons why such a drastic measure was required, why dozens of agents needed to search the premises for hours. Why they needed to break into a safe, why they needed to search Trump's wife's closets. Unsealing the warrant or the search warrant's return, that's the list of all the materials that were were seized, does not provide the reasoning why this search was done, just the potential crimes that are being investigated and what was removed from the premises. One thing that must be proven to the judge who signed the warrant was whether or not alternative investigative means were available which were less intrusive. Than the search that was actually done here. And this seems somewhat dubious because Trump's lawyers were in touch with the government on their request to get these confidential materials back. Did they really have to go this far? If the search warrant was so ordinary, as Attorney General Merrick Garland said, why did he have to dress address the nation about it? I've never represented someone who's Uh, The search of his premises required the country's top law enforcement official to go on TV and explain to the nation why the search was ordinary. It's obviously not ordinary. And of course, this was the Department of Justice who masterminded this. The FBI can't get a search warrant on their own. They need the DOJ, the Department of Justice, to apply for it. And that's Merrick Garland. The search should have been very limited. And that's what Merrick Garland said, that it was very limited. But it wasn't. If you actually look at the search warrant, they could take anything related to the presidency. That's called a wide berth. That's not a narrow search at all. I mean, they took photos from Trump. And why is our purported nonpartisan law enforcement agencies, why are they injecting themselves into politics? FBI head Jim Comey did when he made a public announcement before the 2016 election saying that Hillary was still being investigated regarding her email uh, stuff, and now Merrick Garland, the attorney general, is, is searching a president's home like he's a cartel member? And I don't care what he had on the premises in terms of confidential materials. You don't do this to a former president, unless you have strong reason to believe that national security is greatly at risk. I'm not talking minor impact. I'm talking a great impact. Was he selling nuclear secrets? Was he conspiring with Russia or China to harm America? No, you don't do this then. You just don't. Even if he was mishandling some, some secret records, the FBI told him to put a better lock on the room where the records were, were held than Trump did. You don't go in there like he's uh, Tony Montana. You just don't. And here's what I think. If somehow Biden is still alive in two years and running for president, Trump is the only Republican that Biden can beat. He's beaten them once already, and everybody hates Trump. Everyone hates Biden too, of course, but Trump is the only guy who I believe that America hates as much as Joe Biden. And how do you ensure that Trump will be the Republican candidate? Well, you make him into a martyr to the Republicans, and that's what they did with this raid. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is a million times smarter than Trump and Biden combined. The presidential debates would look like like, like the MyLine massacre if DeSantis opposed Biden. Trump acted like a fool during the debates against Biden in 2020, making the faces and interrupting him. The Democrats want Trump to run. That's why they did this silly raid on, on Mar-a-Lago. There, there really can't be any other explanation because they certainly helped Trump's candidacy. And to never once search Hunter Biden's home, he's being investigated for crimes by this country, but only Trump uh, gets the visit by dozens of FBI agents? This is just straight political theater weaponizing uh, our law enforcement agencies by the Biden administration against its enemies. If the Republicans ever get back into the White House, which I'm really starting to doubt due to the millions of illegals that Biden is letting in who will soon be Democratic voters... You know, I think on day one of a Republican administration, Republicans need to round up every significant Democrat and begin pouring over their tax returns and business dealings. Find out how Joe Biden made all of his money. The big guy is 10% cut. Find out how Hunter Biden made all his money. Nancy Pelosi and her husband. Find out why they're zillionaires. Uh, That crazy Democratic congressman uh, swallow well who had sex with the chinese spy arrest them all there's plenty of dirty ones just arrest them and if they complain say look you know this is the new the new reality that you created by treating trump the way you did and that will get the point across and it it has to happen and trump was afraid to do any of this uh, even though he began uh, uh, the locker up garbage in relation to Hillary because he himself knew he was dirty and he didn't want the Democrats going after him or going after his kids. He was so dumb and so wrong about this. You could see he was terrified at the thought of people wanting him to charge uh, Hillary criminally because he didn't want it. He knew that his day was going to come. DeSantis, on the other hand, is clean and he should do all that on day one. This is what the Democrats are doing. Uh, they've completely screwed up the country. And instead of trying to fix it, you know, they're going after Trump and trying to indict him. I'm going to talk about Jeffrey Epstein in a second. I talked about Harvey Weinstein last week. I'm going to talk briefly about Jeff Epstein. I met him not long after the Chapo verdict in the summer of 2019. Mark Furnish, my close friend, the lawyer who had been hired to work on the Epstein case along with a bunch of other Large firm, firm lawyers. I believe it was him that contacted me to go see Epstein. There had been outrage that Epstein had uh, been believed to have gotten away with molesting young girls earlier in Florida years before. He had been charged in the Southern District of Florida federally in 2007, and for reasons never really made clear, the case was dismissed and he received a non prosecution agreement, which was kept away from his victims. And eventually he was required to plead guilty in 2008 to one count of procuring for prostitution, a girl below the age of 18. she was 17, and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison. But unlike um, most sex offenders that are convicted in Florida that are sent to state prison, Epstein was instead housed in a private wing of the Palm Beach County stockade. And according to the sheriff's office, after three and a half months was allowed to leave the jail on work release for up to 12 hours a day, six days a week, which is just almost hard to believe. The federal charges that were brought against him in July of 2019, it was at that point uh, in the MCC in Lower Manhattan that I met Jeff Epstein. The new federal case was seen as a way to get around what prosecutors had wrongly done in 2007 and 2008. And there was a real question whether legally the new case was even Uh, Legally permitted uh, after the plea deal that he had reached in uh, 2007, if there was double jeopardy, perhaps, and therefore the uh, and the immunity that he received, whether this new indictment was barred. The general consensus was that the massive public outrage against Epstein was so great that no New York federal judge would ever have the courage to dismiss the charges. And I had actually agreed with that consensus when I when I met with Jeff. We also all recognize that there would be massive pressure on a jury to convict Epstein and and throw away the key at his sentencing. And I met with Jeff in the attorney's uh, conference room in the prison, which is where he was nearly all day, every day in the MCC. He didn't want to be stuck in his small cell with a cellmate in order to uh, get him a bit of freedom. He paid for paralegals and young lawyers to take him into the attorney room and just let him sit there all day. It's a big room. He would get the big room right in the front. And, you know, ostensibly you go there to work on your case with your lawyer, but mostly it just was to get him that additional bit of space and safety that uh, his jail cell wouldn't allow. And I had recommended Marielle Colon as one of the lawyers for the job, as she had done so much of that for Chapo, spending all day with Chapo many days of the week to keep him company prior to his trial she also worked on his case with him. And unlike Epstein, Chapo was not permitted to stay in the larger attorney conference rooms in the MCC. He was stuck in the same area where he was housed in a a tiny area known for very high security prisoners in the MCC where there was actually solitary confinement. So when you visit him, Chapo, as a lawyer, you didn't go into a room where you could have physical contact with him in a big room. He was locked in a small cage on one side, You were locked in a small cage across from him. You couldn't touch him, but at least Chapo had company and someone to talk to, which is why uh, we did that for him. Without those legal visits, Chapo was in solitary confinement all day, unlike Epstein. Now, when I met Jeff, it was with Mark furnish present, And Mark, as I said, is probably the best lawyer in New York, appellate lawyer in New York, if not the country. He's a law guy and he's, you know, really brilliant. And wonderful, and has had many great victories. A very odd dude. Mark is a very odd dude, but the most loyal friend I probably have. And Mark was all hyped up about the case. He's talking a mile a minute. Epstein was bizarrely calm, a very handsome guy. He's wearing this orange jumpsuit. And Mark was like, like a fly buzzing around the room, which is exactly what you kind of want in your lawyer. You want a guy who's all filled with ideas and energy. But Mark doesn't always read people quickly or correctly, which is why he's not a trial lawyer. And it was instantly obvious to me that Jeff was not looking to discuss strategy. He just wanted to sit with me and talk about the people that we knew. He was curious. He asked about Chapo, what he was like. He asked about Gotti Jr., what he was like, Gotti Sr., some other clients. He really just wanted to sit and talk. And I suppose take a measure of me And I think he could quickly surmise that I wasn't like the big firm lawyers who were just financially destroying him and and working on his case ostensibly while he was rotting in jail. And sometimes the big firms, their main goals are billing and making money and cutting the throats of any lawyers who might get in the way of their billing and their fleecing of a client. He could tell, I think, that I was much more interested in the case to try to win it instead of just trying to make money from him. because. You know, that's what I do for a living. I enjoy trying these cases for infamous people. The more drama, the more pressure, the better. And I think Jeff just wanted to see my feelings about representing him. And he quickly acknowledged that I I wasn't one who was going to be afraid of public opinion because I had just finished the Chapo case. And frankly, after Chapo, I didn't really give a fuck what anyone thought of me. And not that I ever really had before cared. But unlike the Harvey Weinstein case, for some reason, Epstein's case wasn't as appalling to me. Maybe because Epstein didn't really look like a sexual predator the way Harvey seemed to more. And it was a federal case better than a state case. There's a little more civilized behavior in a federal courtroom. So we ended up just sitting around and talking and laughing, uh, Jeff and I. And Mark was still trying to discuss every possible legal issue in existence. And finally, Jeff just told him to knock it off. Mark, Keep your voice down. Shh, quiet, enough. I don't want to talk about it. He liked quiet. He wanted quiet. And I laughed to myself because I want the same thing. I like quiet. I like calm, serenity, if I can get it, because most of the time my life is not. I was feeling that Jeff was someone that I could work with. He was, as I said, very calm and did not seem stressed out at all. And he never raised his voice, never. And I'm not embarrassed to say that we really hit it off. I mean, yes, I am aware of what he was charged with. I get it, I get it, get it. But again, I judge clients based on how they treat me from that point forward, not what they've done in the past. Because how can I? Then I won't be able to represent anybody. And people deserve, at least in America, unless you're a liberal and you don't think people deserve trials, Actually, a lot of Republicans didn't think he deserved the trial either. You know, you have to give them your best defense. And I like Jeff. We really, you know, we really hit it off. I don't know what to say. We really hit it off. And he didn't have any legal materials with him whenever he came down to meet with me, except for one thing, his address book with all of these bold-faced names inside. He pushed it towards me, I remember, when, when we met. And he asked me if I wanted to have a look inside, and I I sure as hell did. And the names that were in there were like, which is like beyond belief, Bill Gates, Bill Clinton, the former prime minister of Israel, Elie Wiesel, the Holocaust survivor, turned writer, turned Nobel prize winner. And I looked up when I saw that name and, and Jeff just smirked and very difficult guy is all he said, just shook his head. And I saw Trump names in there. And now I've seen the black book, which was released publicly. I think it was somehow smuggled out from years ago. This was not the black book that I saw. The one that was released publicly was all typed up names with their contact info. That's not the book that I saw. I saw a book in which all the names were handwritten. It was handwritten. It was a different book. And I didn't want to appear uh, too much like a star fucker, so I didn't ask about many of the names, but he was really interested in what I thought, and he was proud of the book and who he knew. And I saw him a few times for a few hours each time, and we rarely spent time talking about trial strategy because he just wasn't interested at all. And that seemed odd to me, really odd, because he's soon going to be fighting for his life and didn't want to talk strategy at all. He asked me if I thought that there was any chance uh, that the government would offer a reasonable plea offer. And I told him there's no way. It would be like Chapo. They just want this guy dead. And would the government possibly be interested in talking to him? And again, I'm like, there's just no way. The government was embarrassed about how they handled the case, his case in 2008. And now he had to pay for it, of course. Not the prosecutors who gave the farm away back then, just Epstein. And why should his lawyers from back then be hillary in the press for cutting this deal? You can't cut a deal without federal prosecutors agreeing to the deal. You can't do it unilaterally. So Jeff pretty much, in his mind, knew his fate. I tried to dissuade him otherwise. He had asked me if I felt there was any chance he could win the trial, and I was honest with him. Absolutely. Jurors take their oaths very seriously despite public pressure, and if you had a good enough trial lawyer, they could be convinced of pretty much anything if you've got the goods to argue it in front of them. And I had spoken to one of the three lawyers, me being one, who were chosen to actually try the case in front of the jury by Epstein. One was Marty Weinberg, who's an old-time Boston lawyer who Mark and I had worked with on a gigantic Russian gambling federal case years before. And Marty was, is, is, not was, is just a gem of a guy and a, a great trial lawyer. And it was fun working with him on that Russian case where we got a, an incredibly great result for the clients. And I was thrilled to have him on Epstein's case. We talked and we laughed about the chance to try a, a case together. And I was really giddy because it's not often that you get a chance to try a giant case like this with lawyers who you actually respect. And Marty was a really cool, really smart guy. I mean, I was, I was thrilled at the prospect of, uh, of trying a case with him. I had told people around me that I wasn't going to take the case. This was just after Chapo, and the last thing I really wanted was more publicity, more people that were calling for my head. But knowing I could work with lawyers like Marty and Mark made things much different than the clowns I've had to work with in the past, including uh, in Chapo. And while we hadn't discussed money yet, money was not going to be an issue, clearly, with Jeff Epstein. In my mind, I was taking the case, even if I didn't admit it to anyone, and I'm saying that for the first time. I've never admitted it to anyone, but I was taking the case. And then a few days later, uh, Marielle called me and told me that Epstein wanted his will changed. And I thought that was odd, but not all that unprecedented for a high-profile inmate that's in prison. But combined with not really wanting to talk about trial strategy or evidence, it added up to something in retrospect when I learned a few days later that he was dead ostensibly from a suicide. Based on that, the fact that he didn't want to talk about trial strategy, the fact that he wanted his will changed before he died, the suicide was real. You don't change your will and not want to talk about evidence for no good reason. He was clearly planning ahead. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, IHAR Radio. You can go to Beyond the Legal Limit and write to me. I appreciate you listening. I like getting these stories down because once I forget them, they're gone forever. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week.